Hello, and welcome to the Tennis with an Accent podcast, where we talk about tennis by connecting the present of the sport with its storied past. Be it the nuanced unpacking of the individual stories, long-form interviews, or the detailed tour-level analysis, we have you covered. Welcome to this special edition of the Tennis with an Accent podcast. This is Matt Zemek. Uh, Saqib Ali is producing, uh, but I'm uh, going to be uh, guiding this conversation with in-house analysts, Andrew Burden and Coach Mert Ertunga. This is a special Rafael Nadal uh, standalone podcast. Uh, a little bit of a tribute, but mostly it's a, like a newsmaker podcast in that we're reacting to you know the recent a decision that you know he's likely uh, to make next year, 2024, uh, his last on tour. The decision to not play Roland Garros uh, amidst his injury troubles, uh, the slow rehab, the slow process of recovery. Like we've seen videos of him on the practice courts, you know, just bending over, realizing that nope, his body was not ready for this year's edition of Roland Garros, and so Nadal in some form or fashion, is going to try to rally and make one more really strong go of it uh, next year. And then that's probably going to be the end. It's not like a 100% absolute. And like we don't know when his last tournament, when his last match is going to be. So in the midst of those unresolved questions, that's what this conversation is going to start with. And we're also going to have an element certainly of appreciation in a larger context for what Rafael Nadal has been able to achieve in, in his career, and more specifically, how long he's been able to keep this magnificent career going. You know, we know that uh, even a decade ago, a long time ago, there were worries about how long Nadal would be able to play at an elite level. He's certainly surpassed virtually every expectation in that regard. So that's going to be a part of our conversation with Andrew and Mert. But we start with the immediate news value, the immediate uh, reaction to the decision to not play Roland Garros, what you think, what you guys think uh, went into the decision, when did you sense that maybe it was going to go in this direction, and what should what should Rafa's plan be in the short term? We're not talking about where he hangs it up, you know, how what, what his final match is going to be. We're going to ask that. We're going to deal with that just around the corner. But first, just the immediate aspects of this situation, the decision, what went into it, how uh, the Nadal equation uh, shaped up in his mind. Uh, Andrew, uh, I want to go to you first, and Mert, you can then uh, uh, come in a- uh, after Andrew gives his answer. So I think that we knew that uh, Nadal was struggling, uh, needed a, a considerable period of recuperation. I don't think it was a great surprise after he he missed Indian Wells in Miami that he didn't come back to play Monte Carlo, which is you know the scene of of so many victories and trophy liftings and trophy bitings in the past. He didn't play Barcelona, which is really his home tournament. But I think really when when he withdrew from Madrid there was something of a sense of he's going to he's going to struggle to be ready for Roland Garros. It was possible to think about him you know, potentially coming to Rome, getting a couple of matches under his belt there and and declaring himself fit to compete. But I think that when he withdrew from Madrid, the writing was on the wall. So his decision not to compete in Roland Garros, you then have, well, maybe he's um, he's going to go to Wimbledon. Well, that's been a tournament that, that's disappointed him in the last few years. Very hard to... Now, he, he hasn't played a full uh, tournament session or even any matches on the clay, but starting again on grass, that always felt a little bit odd. And so his decision seems to to be to just basically pull the ripcord on 2023 and as he's done in the past see if he's uh, able to to use that time to rehabilitate and then to see 
how he looks going into 2024. He said that he wants to play Davis Cup, which I think potentially positions him to represent Spain in the Olympics in 2024. And given all his past success there, both at singles and doubles, I think that you you could well see Rafa wanting to to show up in in Paris for the Olympics. Um, so I, I I I was sorry, but I wasn't enormously surprised once he with, withdrew from Madrid. Mert, what about you? Yeah, the the part that uh, that surprised me or, or kind of baffles me too, to be honest, is um, yeah, the the writing was on the wall about this year, but. The fact that he announced to 2024 as his final year is the part where um, where I got baffled a little bit. You know, I, I I I didn't see I didn't see him announcing this far ahead that the year coming up next year would be his last year. I mean, I guess I guess my question would be, how would you know that? Like, how how would you know that you don't fully recover and maybe go? It's just too far into the future to. Uh, to make such decision. I, I always thought that Rafa would exit a little bit like the way Roger did. In other words, perhaps, you know, the body give up on him or maybe an injury that, that he cannot overcome. And therefore he announces his retirement. And, uh, but this, this type of retirement is where, or this type of announcement is where he calls off the rest of the year already in, uh, in May, beginning May or end of April. And then says, and, and already calls the end of next year too, uh, in terms of his career, and uh, that's the part that um, that um, that 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 I didn't expect. Let's put it that way. It was unexpected for me. As for as for what took place up to this moment this year, I'm I'm I'm, I'm in your boat completely. Yeah, I'm looking at the translation of the announcement that that, that Rafa made at. Uh, his academy and i think there's a little bit of wiggle room there he said it's probably going to be my last year in the professional tour but then he qualifies it and says that's my idea even that i can't say that 100 percent it's going to be like this because you never know what's going to happen but my idea and motivation is to try and enjoy and to try to say goodbye to all the tournaments that have been important to me in my tennis career yes there's a bit of wiggle room it's true so you never know. I mean, I, I, I would guess that, you know, you, you've got wiggle room on both sides. You've got potentially that he's not able to get back to tournament fitness or he, he plays in a couple of tournaments and then finds that he has to withdraw and he's struggling again to after, let's say, the Australian Open to, to make it again to, for the, the clay court season. So I think he's he's putting some wiggle room in there that that you know even with another six months off he he just may not physically have enough in him, which I think uh, is he, what really yeah. happened with with Federer that he uh, he came back um, in twenty twenty one and he was undercooked and and struggled really throughout the season. Made something of a run at Wimbledon, but but exited tamely, I think, to Hurkats, pulled the ripcord, and, and we were discussing during twenty twenty one. You know, he's not likely to win many tournaments. This is him playing his way to see if he's going to be relevant in twenty twenty two. Then he pulled the ripcord, and then it became obvious that he he was basically either trying to make it back for Wimbledon or for Labour Cup, and he did the. The doubles at Labour Cup, and apparently it was it was a strain even to do that. But then on the other side, the Dal might, um, you know, who knows, win a, another Monte Carlo and another uh, Roland Garros, and you know, well, make Andrew, a deep run at the be, U.S. Open. But but wouldn't that be? And and you mentioned this too about the Olympics. Wouldn't that be his uh, his dream exit? Do you think that's in the back of his mind? You know, winning winning a couple of clay court titles, winning French Open, and then doing well at the Olympics, and perhaps exiting then? Very possibly. Uh, I, think that we, I think that we don't know until we next see Nadal on a tennis court to play a tennis match 
for sure. And even and there, you... you know, the, the mm. rust may be there. It may be that he's a little bit tentative, but until, and, until we've seen him step on the tennis court, until we've heard from him, you know, we're, we, we've, we've got a fair range of outcomes for what 2024 might bring. And one more question to you, Andrew, if, <clears throat> and uh, the, you, you chronologically described what took place this year. And yes, at this point, it didn't come as a surprise. But put yourself back uh, 12 months, and he's won the Australian Open. He wins uh, Roland Garros. Back then, would you have guessed that we'd be in this state? I would not have. No. Um, although, you know, when we get into the, the recap of Nadal's career, it's, it, it really is a roller coaster because there have been so many situations where you've thought, okay, he's, he, he, he's back to winning ways. He's, uh, he's found his groove again. And then something goes wrong physically for him. Um, and, you know, if you were Rafael Nadal's um, doctors, you've probably been able to buy a boat or two with uh, all of the, the ailments that he's, he's, he's fought through through his career. So, yeah, after Roland Garros, and he makes a run to the, the semis at Wimbledon, but then has to withdraw from, from that and couldn't, couldn't face Nick Kyrgios at Wimbledon. And he, he was in position to win a calendar year Grand Slam after his quarterfinal win at Wimbledon. All right. So, you know, this is separate from the question of, you know, wh how you think Nadal is going to map out his end game. The end game, you know, how he calls it a career and what goes into that. That's a separate matter from how he lines up uh, his schedule over the next year to see if he can elicit some good results, to see if he can elicit good form, to see if maybe he's able to play well enough that, oh, that wiggle room you talked about, maybe he can then extend his career into 2025 and, and, and you know, encounter the pleasant surprise of, oh, maybe my body has more left to give than what I currently think. You know, he did say, and this was one of the more revealing parts of his press conference, that it's not so much he's choosing, uh, you know, his – his schedule, it's more of like what the what his body will allow, something to that effect. Like it's not as though he wants to be doing this, but like his bot that's the message his body is sending him. So if we deal with the specific question, guys, and I'll put this to Mert first and then Andrew second. Uh, if we deal with the specific question of how can Nadal put his body in the best position, or maybe if not phrased that way. How can he give his body the best possible chance of being as resilient and restorative as he can under these constraining circumstances? What do you think the pathway should be for the next year, uh, 15 months or so for Nadal? Do you have a, a, a good idea of how that should be? Or is it just, hey, Rafa, you know your body, you, you do what you you need to do you think there is a specific roadmap out there which would be good for rafa mert i i would think that this is a well disclaimer everything i'm going to say now is going to be pure speculation of course because uh, the rafa himself and his physio and his team would uh, are the are the ones with the most knowledge on uh, on this topic and i'm sure they'll make the best decision uh, i would think that if he feels like he's recovered anywhere close to 100%, then he'd play, you know, he would play Davis Cup. Uh, now his form may not be good, but if, he's, but if he has physically recovered, uh, he would play Davis Cup. And then I would imagine he would just go ahead and play the same type of schedule that he's always played. You know, Australian, maybe one, of the, one out of the two hardcore uh, tournaments in the U.S. or who knows, maybe both, but then, uh, or none you know, play Australian Open and then play play the clay court season full and French Open. That would be the one that would uh, make sense for him. Of course, this is assuming that he has recovered 100% or close to 100% by Davis Cup and certainly 100% by the Australian Open and, and then hope that he doesn't get injured again. 
that would be my yeah. take. What about yours, Andrew? So one of the words that you you hear out of Nadal's mouth over and over again, and it's it's kind of a north star for for him, is to compete. The I have to feel that I'm able to compete. And I think that if if he does believe that he's able to compete, and he does believe that he can he can give everything to the matches, then early round defeats, suppose that hypothetically speaking, he comes back, he plays Davis Cup, he makes the fourth round at the Australian Open, he plays Indian Wells and you know wins several matches there. And he says, I'm able to compete. I'm ready to to play a, a clay court schedule now. Would he try and play Monte Carlo, Barcelona, Madrid, Rome, and then Roland Garros? Or would he pick three of the five? I don't know. You know, maybe say, hey, Monte Carlo, Barcelona, Roland Garros. I've got to give myself enough time to, to recuperate. But if he's competitive, then I think you'll see him out there. But if he's if he's basically showing up on the court and he's playing the world number 78, um, I mean, his ranking, I think, is going to drop substantially uh, this year. He'll be potentially getting wild cards. He'll he'll be on the, the central court. But, you know, suppose that he, he plays the world number 78 or a guy like Holger Runa and, and Runa sort of drubs him two and one. It, it, I think that there's a, there really is the question he'll be asking himself, am I able to compete? I, I don't want people just to show up to see me. I want them to see me compete. What do you guys think about the idea of, and, you know, this idea, I think in my mind, I'm not going to say it's likely but I would say it's enhanced by the reality that he hasn't had to play a clay. He hasn't been able to play clay this year. What do you think about the idea of going light on hardcore tournaments, especially if, especially if we take him at his word that like 2024 is likely to be his last year. What would you say guys to the idea that Nadal should just go heavy on clay, you know, maybe play a, a South American clay court tournament instead of uh um, the the uh, New Mex the Mexico uh, and then Indian Wells Miami swing in in North America you know in Southern California basically in the desert uh, go to South America play some clay then take March off and then load up for you know a full clay season being able to play Monte Carlo being able to play Madrid uh, you know and being able to just spend your your last year on tour if it is your last year on tour on your best surface and, and minimize hard courts in the equation, especially now that, you know, ranking points and uh, are not as much of a consideration. If you're just trying to think about enjoying the game and, and be putting yourself in the best position to compete Mert first, Andrew second on that question. I think again, if by uh, Davis cup time, he's back to 100% or by the end of the year, he's back to 100% or feels close to it. Uh, I think he'll play the Australian Open. Uh, he, you know, these guys are here for big titles. And uh, I don't think the surface, uh, uh, this, the surface underlining that you just brought, brought, brought in will matter at this point in his career. You know, you, you're making a good point. It's just that in this context, I think in, in, in this particular point uh, in his career, I think he'd, he'd, if he, if 2024 will really be his last year and he feels like his body-wise he can take the, uh, the, 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 the hard-court five-set matches, he'll go ahead and play the Australian Open and then maybe pass on, uh, the, pass on the rest of the American Tour and move to the clay court. That's possible. But I don't think he will uh, not play the Australian Open if he feels like he can compete at, at 100% or close to it. Oh yeah, but so that that really is the question though. Like in in February and early March, should he take that time off? Should he make a detour to South America, or should he go and head and play those the hardcourt five hundred and then the in and then Indian Wells? And we know he's not going to play Miami because you know the proximity to Monte Carlo 
Like that has always been a tough spot for him on the calendar in terms of lining up his season, certainly in more recent years. So that it's really more a, more a February March question rather than an Australian open question. Yeah. I, I don't, I don't think after the Australian open, he would, he would go play clay court tournaments before the European European swing. Are they even during that time? Yeah, the, I, mean, the I, I think Brazil I think and Argentina that, are in February. Okay, so he would have to travel down to down to the down to South America immediately after Australian Open. No, I don't. I don't think he would do that. I I, I wouldn't put money on that. Hey, Andrew, uh, I think it's an interesting scenario. I think that we've we've heard a lot over the years, particularly from Tio Tony, about how hard the the hard courts are on on the body com, compared to clay um i so it would be amusing to see nadal saying i'm going to play uh 85% of the matches on on clay uh are the olympics hard courts i don't know i'm pretty sure it's at roland garros Oh, so yeah, so there's the there you go. So yeah, it uh, it would it it would be an interesting scenario. I I think that the predictions at this time are are really hard to do. Uh, I don't know what kind of rehabilitation Nadal needs to do. And then whether by September, let's say, he he is completely through the injury rehabilitation. So September 2023, he's completely through the injury rehabilitation and then is able to do strength training, practicing um, some practice sets and then practice matches. And then is, you know, where he sees himself in november december of of 2023 and you know we'll know a lot more then but it would it would be kind of funny to see nadal you know just just going 100 percent clay next year would the i mean i guess the the only way i see that happening is if he gets some serious uh appearance fees and uh for those tournaments and and, and nadal does get what many would consider outrageous appearance fees for uh, for tournaments like that. So maybe that's that would be one thing that would convince him for one or two of them. I, otherwise, I I don't see it happening again. I, I was I just wanted to add that in. You don't think he's got a big enough mattress already, uh, Andrew? You, they get um, if that were the case, they would he wouldn't consider him and Roger late in their careers would not have considered other offers that they took. They, they, we're we're not talking about uh, we're talking about quite a lot of mattresses here when these yes. guys make appearances for those tournaments, even, yep. even to them, it's a significant amount of money. So, uh, it, you know, Hey, if the tournament directors in Rio and Buenos Aires are uh, listening to the tennis with an accent podcast, uh, Mert Ertunga is just giving you a little bit of, uh, advice hint, hint, little, little elbow to the chops there. Uh, if you want to lure Rafa, uh, in 2024, all right, so we're going to give a little bit of an appraisal of Rafa's career, on specifically related to the longevity question. That That's coming up in a little bit. But there's one more round of, you know, what is unavoidably, you know, this is speculation. Mertz alluded to it, and, like, you know, like, we don't know what's going to happen. So, like, we would, everyone should be aware of that, that this is, there's a lot of uh, speculation in this discussion, it's, uh, it is, but it's unavoidably speculative. And like, you know, there's a time for speculative talk. That's a lot of what this is, but like, it's interesting, right? It's interesting to toss around uh, these scenarios. And so there's one more general speculative kind of question to give to both of you guys. I'm going to throw it to Andrew first, then to Mert. And that is like, we're going to, if, if Rafa Nadal's body collapses if if the body just isn't there as we saw with Federer you know we're seeing each of the big three go through these sequences one by one if the body's not there you know the end's going to come sooner rather than later the doll's menu of choices is going to shrink 
instead of expand. So like that's kind of the easy scenario. If the if the body just kind of fades away and just isn't able to perform. The more interesting scenario is what if the body holds up, but Nadal is in an in-between place in terms of the results he is generating. Now, Andrew mentioned, you know, this notion of competition as something that Nadal has spoken about. So if he's competing well, but the results aren't showing up at the same level, how much do you think that's going to affect Nadal's calculus? So let's put out a marker here uh, as we consider this question. Like if he's making uh, 1,000-point semis and uh, like he makes the Australian Open quarterfinals, any sense of and, and then the but the body is holding up like that's part of this hypothetical here. Any sense that like a certain baseline or a certain consistent level of results might give Nadal reason to think, hmm, maybe I don't have to call it quits in 2024. Maybe I can extend this thing a little longer. Any sense of what the result baseline, the results oriented baseline might be to change the equation for Rafael Nadal. Andrew first. So, you know, the first thing is, does he stay healthy? So let's stipulate that he, he does stay healthy. Yeah, that's part of this. That, that, that it's, you know, if the injuries are overwhelm him, we'll know that this career is going to wind down sooner rather than later. But if the body holds right. up, that's part of it. If, if he's if he's able to compete, if he's able to make some some deep runs, and he's making you know a quarterfinal here, a semifinal there, then I wonder whether he he says I can leave on my own terms in twenty twenty four. This was this is what I wanted to do. Um, you know, tremendous love for the fans and the chance to give back to them. But I've been really happy that I've been able to compete. Um, you know, if you see him taking bite-sized chunks out of a couple of big trophies, you know, suppose that he he goes deep in Rome and beats Novak in the third set of a semi-final and beats Carlos in the final and he shows up in Roland Garros with, with a tailwind and what do you know, it's, uh, it's number 15 there, then, Hey, um, who knows where he'd go from there. But I think if he's not winning tournaments, if he's, if he's, if he's showing up, if he's playing two or three matches here, if he's competitive, but it's sort of like, yeah, I'm, I, I'm, I'm not getting across the finish line. It's really hard for me to see him saying, yeah, another year, another year, another year. Hey, Mark. Um, yeah, I've, uh, I've, um, I've listened to Tony Nadal, Francisco Roig, Carlos Costa, and Carlos Moya speak over the years so many times. And there's one constant that keeps coming back when they talk about uh, Rafa. And they all say that if Rafa feels like he has room to improve, he will keep going. He will he will strive to to make that small improvement, you know, harp on that detail until he gets it better. And in the scenario you described, Matt, uh, there 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 is room for improvement. And I think uh, I think he will then want to stay and keep competing, and keep playing. That this is why I I'm, I'm even with the with the with the um, the caveat, you know, the the wiggle room that. Uh, uh, Andrew mentioned. I'm 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 still surprised that he even says something like, uh, you know, pr- 2024 will probably be my last year. That's that's just a heavy heavy statement to make, even with the wiggle room, uh, f- for a guy like Nadal. Because because uh, again, this in this scenario you described, even if he's not winning trophies, but he but he reaches a certain amount of rounds and he's competing, uh, his drive to improve. And um, and and work on little details will will still be there. That's and then that's his uh, coaches, his team speaking there, and they, that's 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 a constant that they keep bringing up. So yeah, I think in the in the scenario that you described, I think he will want to continue playing. All right. Before the appraisal of Nadal's career and its longevity, one now let's move to 
a specific treatment of the end game. And obviously, you know, we, we don't know when it's going to happen and we'll have to let things play out. Like we've all acknowledged that we're all aware of that, but uh, this, this kind of invites a recollection of how Federer uh, ended his career at labor cup. And, you know, obviously you guys can have weigh in on your own, but you know, to me, it felt right. Like it was certainly a beautiful poignant send off the way any athlete w- would want, you know, that with the being carried off the court and it was in a team environment and it was in a context where, okay, he lost a match, but it was doubles with Nadal. There were a lot of really special elements of it. Like it felt right. It was, uh, th- there's a spiritual writer named Ron Rollheiser and he talks about how, you know, when, when, when uh, at funerals, you know, some funerals are grim and, and, and they feel like what might have been and there's a sense of lamentation, but other funerals are really joyful. He, he says that, that it's like wine being poured out. It's a feast. It's a celebration. And so the way Federer laid down his career, the way he brought it to an end, it felt like water and, and, and wine uh, being poured out as a celebration. It felt like uh, you know, the, the right way to, to bring it to an end. So in that vein, what just what do you think would feel right? And, and, and it's not a matter of like what Rafa should do, just in kind of your aesthetic, your appreciation of Nadal, your, uh, you know, ability to cherish what he's meant to tennis and, and this amazing era over the past two decades. Just your what's your sense of what you think would feel right as the place the venue the occasion for Nadal to lay down his career Mert first Andrew second if he's able to I mean if if he's uh, if his body's in bad shape and he cannot play or uh, you know like Roger did you know just go out and play a certain uh, um, a match of doubles maybe uh, but uh, I would I would pick a spot somewhere in Spain some type of arena, a big arena, because he's, he's had memorable uh, uh, Davis Cup wins, as did uh, Spain as a team in some uh, fantastic arenas in uh, in Spain, and uh, that's that's the kind of place that I would pick for him to for his farewell if they would like to organize such thing. Uh, if he can, um, I mean, I was thinking as you were speaking, I was thinking something like maybe in Davis Cup if they if they already won the match, the tie, in other words, and uh, there's a, a a doubles match about to go on, maybe put him on. You know, he can go on there to play. It, this is all assuming that his body has given up and he can't do much. But otherwise, I would put some. I would go with some sort of an exhibition with him involved uh, in uh, in some nicely marketed and nicely prepared arena in Spain. Andrew. Um, I, it's really, really hard to say. I, I know that um, Pete Bodo um, had this long held idea that uh, Pete Sampras's win in the US Open 2002 and then over time he didn't say this is my last match but he allowed it to be known that he he wasn't coming back to the court that 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 was the right way to go Um, possibly Barcelona but uh, I think it's it's always very hard for me to divorce the career from the the last time a player is is on court and i i spend much more time thinking about when i think about federer i spend much more time thinking about his play over a couple of decades than i do about that last labor cup match uh, that worked for him. Uh, what will work for Nadal is is, is yet to be seen. Um, but it's it's a small thing compared to to all the rest of of what he's meant to tennis. 
Well, in terms of what he's meant to tennis, let's now tackle that question. I've been teasing it really for the last 10 minutes. Like, we're going to get to it. We're going to get to it. So let's get to it right now. Uh, you know, when, when Nadal does retire, we'll obviously do a full treatment of his career. But for this episode and the things that Rafa is facing right now, the challenges he's, look, he's staring in the face right now, it's wor- definitely worth appreciating the longevity of Nadal. And I'm going to come right out and, and admit it. I, like I've said it on Twitter, but definitely need to say it again on this podcast. I thought about a decade ago that Nadal, with all that he was doing on hard courts, to his knees, to his joints, I didn't think he would be you know, an elite player, robustly relevant at the height of his powers, much past the age of 30, 31. Uh, I thought that like the fuel tank was going to empty out, that the body was going to give up, that, you know, playing so much on hard courts and a hard court dominated tour uh, was going to take its toll. And so Nadal definitely refuted me there. He definitely uh, proved me wrong. He definitely exceeded my expectations and perceptions by a lot. Uh, and so I think the, the, the essential question to ask both of you guys is, when did you first get a window, uh, uh, like a really true and full appreciation of how resilient Nadal was? Not, and we're not talking mentally as a competitor, but the ability of his body, the ability to you know, go through a pretty intense pain and some significant injuries and, and the layoffs that they caused and come back stronger. Like we've seen him do it several times. I guess which, which of those times was either the most impressive or like the first time when you realized, wow, this guy is doing something at a much higher level than most athletes are. Uh, I'm going to throw this to you, Mert, first, because I remember that when we've done some retrospective uh, tennis podcasts, I, one thing that really sticks with me from some of the shows uh, I've done with you, you, know, you mentioned how in the 1990s, it was kind of the worst time to be a professional tennis player because you had the emerging racket technology, which was making the sport more physical, more grueling. And yet in the 90s, the sports science, the sports medicine had not advanced in ways it has in, in more recent years. And so that was kind of the valley. That was kind of the in-between time when players' careers really didn't have a chance to attain uh, great longevity the way older players did, like a Ken Rosewall, because you were doing wood racket, you using wood rackets and the sport wasn't as physical. That's, that was what enabled careers to last longer back then. And then in the 2000s, and especially the 2010s, we've seen greater advancements in sports medicine. So players in the 90s were kind of out of luck uh, in that regard. So like you have a, Mert, you have a very keen understanding of how tennis players do and don't achieve uh, longevity. So with all of that in mind, like what has impressed you the most and what, what struck you the most from Nadal's journey? in terms of his body and its ability to overcome the many significant injuries he's endured? Um, in the, within the context of your question, my answer would be, for me, the, 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 the most impressive uh, portion of Nadal's career in terms of your, you know, in the, in the, in the um, frame of your question is uh, 2013, when, um, when he decides that he's injured and uh, I forgot which injury because he's had so many, but uh, he uh, he starts the year with, uh, and it's funny that 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 I'm mentioning this because we just talked about it. He starts with the South American clay court tour, and uh, he and, and he can't play the Australian Open, and then starts with the um, with the South American tour, and then and then goes on to win you know Indian Wells, and then of course collects the uh, titles on clay. He does that memorable five setter with uh, Novak in the semis. And then goes on and, and wins both Canada and Cincinnati hard courts and pockets the U.S. Open title, beating Novak in the in in, in the final. And um, that's the, that year to me the, his his ability to not only just recuperate physically, but also to build his form up. So uh, in such a steep curve, you know, for in a matter of two and a half months, if I'm if I if I remember correctly, he went from. Uh, still on the injury uh, frame 
to play in some of his top tennis. And uh, that to me, that was uh, super impressive. Not that he were, he didn't get injured before that, not that he hadn't gotten injured before that and had to recuperate before that. But, uh, but that particular recovery uh, in 2013, this is, this is not even, uh, you know, the, this is not even uh, the first time he became a superstar either, you know, 2008, 2010 were great years for him, but the, but the, 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 the curve of, uh, of his uh, recovery and followed by, him finding his top form on both clay and hard courts were uh, incredibly impressive. Andrew. Yeah, I think that that's a tremendous year. I think 2017 is, is another one. Um, particularly when you consider 2015 and 2016. So in 2015 uh, and 2016, Nadal doesn't get past the quarterfinals in any major. Uh, he won the French Open in 2014. There was a streak of, of five wins, uh, but the the defeat to Novak in three sets in 2015, which was only the second time I believe that he'd lost a five-set match in on clay the other one being uh Robin Sodling in the 2009 match but he went out in three sets to um to Novak and the the third set wasn't terribly competitive so by 2017 you know you're not you're not quite writing off Rafa, but you you come into Melbourne and and basically everyone's talking about Murray, who's the new ATP number one, and Novak. So then there's this uh, interesting Australian Open that sees the Federal rivalry rekindled, Federer holding out and um, actually you know coming back from a breakdown in the fifth set. And Andy Roddick, uh, who was interviewed before that match, was talking about Grand Slam titles and says, if Roger wins, if, if Rafa wins at 17-15 and he's, he's on the cusp, if Roger wins, it's 18-14 and I don't know if he can make up that ground. Well, Roger did win, but then Rafa went on to win the French Open and the US Open uh, he won a couple of Masters in that year. Um, and then in two years after that, 2019 and 2022, he, he, he also won two majors. So the, you know, the ability to come back post-30, this was, this was something that you teed up, Matt, that um, I went and looked up uh, an interview, a press conference that Andre Agassi gave uh, at uh, Shanghai for the Tennis Masters Cup, as it was then in November 2005. Nadal had had to withdraw uh, from the tournament. And Agassi said, He's a great talent and uh, he has, he's for sure raised the bar for how players need to approach the game. You know, it's a very physical game, but he's writing checks that you only hope his body can cash. It's a very famous line. He plays very hard every single point. You hope he can stay healthy, but it is a lot of wear and tear. A great career not only takes what he has, but it also takes some luck too. You know, you have to be healthy. So... Agassi in 2005 saying he's writing checks that you fear that he may not be able to cash later on. And then 11 years on in 2016, Nadal takes half the year off to, to recuperate and you wonder what he'll have left. And that's more than six years ago. And, and we saw what he had left. Quite remarkable. Okay. Final question for, for both of you. Uh, because again, we're not looking at all of Nadal's career like that. Well, that that'll be when he retires. But we're looking at the longevity 
because that's what he's running up against. He's running up against the limits of his body, running up against Father Time the way Federer did. Um, so, you know, Andrew, you basically mentioned Nadal's late career period and what he was able to do after, you know, the injuries at Roland Garros in 2015, 2016, those two years when, you know, he was not able to produce results at the expected customary standard. So for both of you guys and, and Andrew, like you've already hinted at this, but I can just get a more specific answer from you. And then from Mert, what was the most impressive and or important late career achievement? It could be a, a championship. It could just be a match win, such as, for instance, beating Djokovic in that uh, Roland Garros quarterfinal in 2022 on his way to uh, his, his most recent and what could potentially be his last Roland Garros title, but you could also go to the U.S. Open against Medvedev uh, in 2019. Which which it, match or championship could be both in his late career period uh, is the most impressive or important on the Nadal resume. So Andrew first, Mert second. Uh, I don't know if I'll if I'll pick a specific match. I think that there's one that comes to mind if you want to to hone in on a, on a specific match um you can think of the australian open final in 2022 when he's he's down two sets to love against daniel medvedev and and he grits out a fantastic five set win that that was really quite something um but for me so I'm, uh, I, I, I spent all kinds of time before this conversation looking up lots of Nadal's stats, thinking that we were going to have a, a, a stats-focused conversation. So uh, anyway, tear up those pieces of paper. The, the thing well, that save I'm, them for I'm, next year. Uh, okay. Uh, but the thing that I'm going to point out that I think is really impressive is... Nadal managed to turn around the head-to-head against Novak after, um, in his in the early phase of their rivalry up to the end of 2010, Nadal was strongly ahead, won 16, lost 17 against Novak. Over the next six years, Novak turns it around completely and wins 18 to seven, including going 15 and four in finals against Rafa. So then you, you, you have the third coming of Rafael Nadal from 2017 onwards. Over that period of time, he's six and four against Novak. And there, there, was, a, there was a period of time, there was one match in particular against uh, Novak, which was the, the gutter final uh, in Doha in 2016, where Novak beat him one and two. And it was the first time I'd ever seen Nadal come on the court where I thought he doesn't think he's got a chance to win. And Novak blew him off the court. So turning that rivalry around and, and finding the things that he needed to find to make himself competitive against the man who by that time clearly his greatest rival. That's, that's a tremendous achievement. Hey, Mark. Yeah. I, uh, I'm going to mention the same match that uh, Andrew mentioned 2022 final uh, when he comes back from two sets to love down uh, against uh, Medvedev. That's, that's Nadal's career in a microcosm. I mean, his, his career is filled with matches that, that you think are gone. And then an hour or two later, he's winning them. His career is full of those, and uh, that's because he's you know he prepares for each point with the same type of uh, concentration and intensity that uh, that 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 uh, that anyone prepares for for a six all point in the fifth set tiebreaker. And uh, for him, the you know it's it's he's got such a small uh, how do I call this um, a memory? You know, he prepares between points those twenty twenty five seconds between points where you, when every player's doubts may creep into their head and they and the two uh, and the two personalities start clashing with each other he's the one who always win the, wins those little duels 
And uh, and I think that match right there was just a, 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 a an illustration of Nadal's career, how he's able to win and win and win when people think he's going to finally lose and lose and lose. Uh, also, you know, I, I would have to mention as a small, um, as an honorable mention, his uh, his last win at the French over Novak, you know, and because the year before. Novak won a monumental match against Nadal in that third in, in the third set of that match was talked about for months and months, and this match was looked at as a, as a turning point in the history of tennis, etc. And Nadal comes back the next year and beats him in four sets, and and modifying his tactics too from the one the one time the one year that he lost the year before. Uh, this that's just that's just Rafa those two titles. Uh, that title runs are just Rafa in a microcosm, but uh, for as a single match, I would go with uh, with the Medvedev comeback match. Well, guys, I, I I think you know we achieved like a well-rounded conversation here, going from how does he schedule, what's the end game going to look like, and then in this final segment, we had definitely some moments of real appreciation for the greatness of Rafael Nadal, and specifically being able to be so good so deep into his career and for so long a period of time, you know, his first uh, major title was at Roland Garros in 2005. And, you know, 17 years later, able to beat Medvedev at the Australian open, able to beat Novak at Roland Garros. Certainly that speaks to the longevity of Rafael Nadal, but of course coming up against the limitations of the human body as he faces the end point of his career. So, you know, we definitely didn't want to just do five to 10 minutes on this subject. Uh, at the start of Roland Garros, we wanted to do a standalone set aside podcast. So we've done it by golly. Uh, Andrew Barton, Coach Mert Ertunga, thank you for joining me in Tennis with an X on this special Rafael Nadal Appreciation Podcast. Thank you, Matt. Cheers, Matt.